when the Apollo 8 mission orbited the moon was a pretty rough year. I don't know if you guys know much about that year. Uh, we saw the, the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Um, both were huge voices in the civil rights movement. There were not only national but international riots um, involved in that movement in 1968. Uh, the, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, uh, they coordinated their Tet Offensive, which took uh, American troops by surprise. There was mass casualties, and on top of that, it was televised. So we felt it back home, and that was a real turning point in the war. Um, Czechoslovakia, which had just gone through a change in leadership that resulted in, in um, a brief period of liberation and reform, um, Czechoslovakia was invaded by the Soviet Union in 1968. And, um, and there were protests over the Vietnam War, both at home and abroad. And so Frank Borman, he's the commander of the Apollo 8 mission, he recalled during his, the 40th anniversary celebration of the Apollo 8 mission um, that they had back in 2008, he recalled that um, they were told that their broadcast would be on Christmas Eve and he would have the largest audience that had ever listened to a human voice. And the only instruction that NASA gave him was, do something appropriate. There were some upset people over the reading. We saw the first three verses. They read the first 10 verses of Genesis and said, God bless all of you back on our good earth. Not only were there upset people, there were lawsuits involved. Um, people said that they were government employees and they shouldn't be pushing religion. Um, during that same interview, that 40th celebration, Borman recalls that passage being chosen because it was held as sacred by so many religions, right? It's not just, it doesn't belong just to Christianity, uh, but also Judaism and Islam both hold that as their creation story. And it's very similar to other creation myths. And you know, we like to pit science and religion against each other. In fact, I've heard people say science and religion, they don't belong together, they don't ever agree, or science is always wrong. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, speaking as a scientist, um, they answer different kind of questions. Science is really good at asking questions about how the material world works, how it used to look, how it's going to look, um, how things look today, those kind of questions. Religion is really good at answering questions like, what choices should I make in life? What purpose do I have? Why are we here? What are my moral obligations or what are the things that I ought to do? But it is interesting, it's cool when the two line up, uh, like right here. In case you're not familiar with this, this is known as the CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background. And it is you're looking at, it kind of looks like a, a globe, right? A map of the whole world, but it's like you're inside the globe looking out. This is what you see when you look at the stars, except you can't see it because it's microwaves. 
but this is the light of creation. Science knows that in the moment of creation, the entire universe was filled with light, and because of time and the spreading of space, that light has stretched into microwaves because that's what happens when light gets stretched out. And if you're not filled with oohs and ahs over that, maybe you don't believe that that's really a thing. You, if you're as old as me or older, you've actually seen it. If you ever were skipping between channels and got one that didn't have reception, you saw this. That static is your TV picking up the light of creation. How crazy is that? So, to spoil it before we start, I'd like to say that today, the point that we're going to be trying to make is that God desires to shine his light into your darkness. He desires to add structure and purpose into your formless and void world. And he desires to move all chaos to harmony. So, Genesis, religion and science. Genesis wasn't written to be a textbook. Jewish schools didn't come up with Genesis so they had something to teach from. It's important for us to know when it was written and the first audience that it was written to. And we find that Moses wrote this in the Old Testament when the Israelites were fleeing after being set free from Egypt. And so that is the audience. He's reminding these people who have been in bondage for 400 years who God is, and the fact that he chose them. And I say free, meaning only physically, because in other aspects they weren't. In fact, the very first moment where things get a little dicey, things get a little chaotic, we see um, Moses goes up on this mountain, and they don't know what happened to him, but the mountain's covered in smoke and fire. And what do they do? They gather gold, and they make the golden calf. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. We're going to be talking about a bunch of Old Testament stories today, but that calf was an Egyptian god. They fell back on what they knew, because if you're in a place for 400 years, you start to adopt some of the culture. Even though you're set apart, you start to believe some of the beliefs. You guys hear what I'm saying? And so Moses wrote this to remind the people who their god is and that they're chosen. So, we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but he didn't leave it a mess. The following verses involve his structuring of creation. It's uniquely designed to foster life. And so we see the very first story happens in a garden, a perfect place. It reminds me of the scene from The Lion King where he takes Simba up on the pride rock and says, my kingdom is everywhere the light touches. So we have this perfect garden where God and man lived in community together. It says that God went on walks, went on strolls with Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And the very first thing that they did was to choose darkness. They hid behind leaves, right? They thought maybe God's light can be blocked. But... That wasn't the case. God found them, and because they chose darkness, they were cast into the darkness. They were cast out of the garden. 
because we can't hide. God desires to shine his light into your darkness. He desires to add structure and purpose into your formless and void world. He desires to move all chaos to harmony. The story that follows that is um, the very first murder recorded. We have these two brothers, uh, Cain and Abel, and they offer sacrifices. And it says that God regards one and disregards the other. But that the, the word there in Hebrew is that God sees one and he doesn't see the other. And seeing is intrinsically tied with light. When we see that Abel is carrying the light and Cain is hiding in the darkness. And what does Cain do? But he murders his brother and thinks that because he's hiding in the darkness, it won't be found out. But God sees, he finds out, he punishes Cain. God desires to shine his light into your darkness. He desires to add structure and purpose into your formless and void world. He desires to move all chaos to harmony. Uh, The following story is of Noah's Ark, and it says that God saw that the whole world was wicked and that there was one man, Noah, and so he resets. He washes the world of darkness and leaves one man and his family and the animals. They belong on the ark too. Um, And then that story shows us that that's not even, that doesn't even work. Washing away the darkness um, doesn't work because um, sin shows up again. We have this horrible story that follows. It doesn't make it into our Sunday school lessons where where Noah sins. Sin shows up again. God desires to shine his light into your darkness. He desires to add structure and purpose into your formless and void world. He desires to move all chaos to harmony. Next, we have another interesting story. It's the Tower of Babel. Um, So mankind comes together and says, let us take the dirt, right, the the chaotic, and form it into bricks. We were given that job in the garden. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the world, right? He gave us that job to turn chaos into harmony. And so the people, it seems like they're picking that up, right? They're making bricks to build a tower to stretch the heaven so that all the world might see how great we are. Dang it, they missed it. (laughs) They missed it. And so what does God do? But he confuses their language. They must spread out because that's not how he's bringing his light back into the world. God desires to shine his light into your darkness. He desires to take your formless, avoid world, add structure and purpose to it. He desires to move all chaos to harmony. And then following that story, we find a man named Abraham. And there's nothing special about him except that God chooses him. God chooses Abraham out of all the people in the world, and he makes Abraham a promise. Even though Abraham is old and his wife is old, God promises that his son would be the father of a great people, that he would be the ancestor of kings. And it's a wild story, and it involves like 
cutting animals in half and fire floating around and things like that. But God shows up as a light in Abraham's life. And then in Genesis 22, the script is flipped a little bit. We read verses 1 through 3. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer, them, offer him there as a burnt offering in the morning. Uh, sorry, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now the craziest part of this story isn't that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Because we have to understand, right, at this point in the story, the whole earth is full of darkness. Child sacrifice was not an uncommon thing. And it is, it is difficult for me to imagine how dark my life would have to be to give up my most prized thing in order to try to find the light. So it's not unusual for God to ask for Isaac as a child sacrifice. What's usual, what's unusual is what happens next. So up on the mountain, as he's sacrificing Isaac, God stops him. And God provides the sacrifice, a ram. And in that moment, uh, Abraham stops and he names this place Jehovah-Jireh. And in many translations, it's the Lord will provide. But in the original Hebrew, it's the Lord sees. And I think that's crazy because there's no reason that God would look on me. You can, you can get like really mind-blown if you start thinking about it. God didn't have to create us. God didn't have to create anything. He's perfect, but he chose to create us. God didn't have to go out of his way to love us, right? He could have created us and just let us go about our life um, like animals. The universe doesn't care about you, right? That's physics 101. Everything is just matter in motion. You are not significant at all. And in the Old Testament, the people that were alive then, they were struggling with this. They were, they were seeing the purposelessness of life and then trying to add purpose to it by reaching out to the divine. It wasn't working, no matter how many children you sacrificed. But Mo- Abraham finds himself on top of a mountain with his son, and God sees him. And by seeing him, he provides. God desires to shine his light into your darkness. He desires to take your formless, void world and add structure and purpose. He desires to bring all chaos to harmony. 
God goes on to add to his promise to Abraham. Picking up in verse 16, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now we're going to save that light for next week. But that desire you have to set things right, and hopefully we've all recognized it, it's, it's the reason that we like make our bed when we get up in the morning, and it feels good. It's the reason that at the end of a long day of work, you feel accomplished. That desire we have to take chaos and, and set it into harmony is given to us by God. So that's a good takeaway, right? He started by shining light into the world. and We'll find out that that's part of our job too. But more importantly, when your life seems like it's consumed in darkness, that there's no purpose, that it's void of meaning, His light is there in that moment because he sees. God sees you. God desires to shine his light into our darkness. He desires to add structure and purpose into our formless and void world. He desires to move all chaos to harmony. Let's pray. Father, we... We stand amazed at your glory, how awesome you are, your infinite power used to speak the universe into existence. And we say thank you. Thank you that not only did you create a perfect world for us, not only did you place us in it, not only did you have a plan from before we messed up, but that you, the eternal, infinite God, sees me. That you shine your light into my world and that you bring the chaos into harmony. We praise you, the God who sees. In Jesus' name, amen.